Hyde Park United Methodist in Tampa, Florida, this is the Bible Project 2020, a journey to reading the Bible without fear or frustration. I'm your host, Matt Hotho. Today's episode is a conversation with Jonathan Mason Wolf, a PhD candidate at Harvard University, and more importantly, a good friend of mine from seminary at Candler School of Theology. Jonathan is currently working on his dissertation, focusing on the use and reuse of biblical texts within the Bible. As mentioned in the prior episode on Job, the book of Job begins with a narrative prologue, chapters 1 through 2, Job's opening complaint against God, chapter 3, followed by three cycles of debates with three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, chapters 4 through 27. Then there is a wisdom poem, chapter 28, followed by speeches from Elihu, Job, and God, chapters 29 through 41, Job's closing words, chapter 42, verses 1 through 6, and the narrative epilogue, chapter 42, verses 7 through 17. This seven-part structure forms what literary scholars call a chiasm. Chiasms can come in any size, but this particular chiasm functions this way. The first and seventh sections of Job mirror each other. They're both narrative sections. The second and sixth sections are Job's opening and closing speeches. The third and fifth sections are three cycles of three speeches. And at the center of the chiasm is the fourth section, the wisdom poem in chapter 28. In chiasms, it is common for the section at the center of the chiasm to be the linchpin of the literary piece. And we'll discuss this with Jonathan. Another example of this technique is in the book of Esther. I'll be posting some diagrams of the book of Esther and the book of Job in our Facebook group, The Bible Project 2020. You can find us on Facebook and join the group. One quick note before we begin. We needed to use a backup audio track for Jonathan, so you will notice some occasional hiccups in his audio feed. Now on to the episode. Tell us a little bit about what you think is going on in the book of Job. You kind of had this interesting, you sent me some notes ahead of time. One of them was this really interesting structure for the book of Job, kind of a way of understanding how it's all building. Uh, and, and you use this big word called chiastic. Can you kind of talk about that for a second, kind of how we understand the structure of Job or how you understand the structure of Job? Yeah, of course. So chiasm is a fairly common literary device used in a lot of literature, particularly common in the Bible. Um, Usually what it means is it's this kind of inverted symmetrical order. So you'll have one unit at the beginning of a, of a text which corresponds to the unit at the end of the text. And then one step in, the second unit will correspond to the second to last and so on. Um, so you end up with this kind of mirrored pattern. And usually what this will lead to is right in the center of a composition, you'll have a unit which there's only one of. Okay. Um, and that is focused within the middle position around all of these different pairs of texts. So in the book of Job, yeah. you know, we can already see this fairly easily when we just recognize that there are two narrative sections in the book, one right at the beginning, chapters one and two, and then one right at the end in chapter 42, verse seven following. Um, within that, we then have these, these different panels which, which build out from each other. So you know, we have an extensive set of dialogues between Job and his three friends as they're called in the, the introduction, Eliphaz, Bildad, and so forth. Um, uh, these then give way to uh, a poem on wisdom right in the middle of the book in chapter 28. And this doesn't seem to be attached to any of the speakers, and so it kind of stands apart from this. Um, right, so this context. would be like the center of that chiasm, right? Yeah, exactly. 
So then moving past the poem on wisdom, we then get a set of three different speeches. The first by Job in uh, 29 to 31. Uh, the second by a man named Elihu, who just appears at this point. In Not the, a friend. Um, another friend, a younger man. Okay. Um, potentially overhearing what's been going on. He's not very happy about it. Um, that's in chapters 32 to 37. And then um, uh, closing up in 38 to 41, you have God speak. So again, three sets of speeches matching the three cycles of uh, Job and the, the friends debate um, just prior to the, the, the wisdom poem. Framing those cycles you know, inside of the narrative prologue and epilogue, you have basically two sets of, of Job's kind of, in the first instance, his opening words, where he, he basically curses the day of his birth and he sets forth his complaint. But then at the end, in chapter 42, in those first six verses, you have him you know, closing out what's happened. And in this instance, he's expressing acceptance of the situation, um, and specifically using some re, sort of reusing some words that were present uh, in, in the narrative prologue and in his, his opening complaint. Okay. And the stuff that's in between the narrative prologue and the narrative epilogue, that's all poetry, right? Oh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, you have a, a few exceptions. So, okay. uh, for example, um, Elihu's speeches in uh, chapter 30. Um, three, uh, 32 is uh, introduced with a short narrative about right, who he is. Right, right, right. And yep. then obviously each of the, the poems is introduced with just usually like one or two words in Hebrew uh, and X answered and ah, said or ah, something. Like okay. those but that's the only, those are the only very minor break out of, the, out of the speech that you have taking place. Okay. And so as you understand the book of Job or as you kind of work with the book of Job, is there like, not not a key per se, but sort of something that's happening in the narrative prologue and epilogue that sort of can help us understand what we're reading in between the book of Job? Yeah, I, th- I think that's that's probably a good way of putting it. The, the issue is as soon as you have a composition, which is made up of two fairly clearly different types of material, uh, you know, one is clearly narrative, one is clearly poetry, the temptation for a lot of people is to kind of separate them off from each other not see right. how they actually read alongside each other. But surely, you know, combining those two things is encouraging you to understand them in relation to each other. And what's important about narration is that the, the viewpoint is far more global. It, it's dealing with a much more extensive um, uh, possibility for knowledge about what is going on than, than if you're thinking about speeches and a few people having a fairly intimate conversation amongst themselves. And what you find there, obviously, in the narrative prologue is this conversation between God and and the accuser, one of the divine court, um, which fronts the issue. And it's an issue which none of the friends nor Job seem to really pick up on. So the issue, as we see in the narrative prologue, is not necessarily one of justice, you know, whether God acts justly or not, but rather one of faith and whether humans can truly be faithful or not. This is the test that the Satan wants to put Job to. Um, right, because so, the question is like, is he going to curse God? Is he going to almost renounce yeah. his faith exactly. instead of keeping I mean, it? Yeah, and, and obviously the Satan is leveling this at Job as an accusation, in, basically fully based on the notion that he um, he only acts in this pious way because he's been rewarded, because he has wealth, because he has many children, because he has mm. health and so on. So the notion for him is that if you take that away, no one will be faithful or not. But this obviously raises a, a big issue within the book as a whole, because as we see in, in the, 
the poetic dialogues, Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, all of them are concerned specifically with whether Job can be righteous and justified if God is righteous and justified. So if Job is suffering, how is it that God could be just? Mm -hmm. Conversely, if Job is just, how is it that God could possibly be just? He must be evil in some way. Now, obviously, they're going to fall down on opposite sides of that conundrum. But this isn't, as we can see from the narrative, isn't what's going on at all. God says explicitly in chapter 2, verse 3, um, you know, uh, that, that Job is, is suffering for nothing. Um, the, exact, uh, the exact quote there is probably worth looking at. Um, so in, in verse 3, chapter 2, he says, and he, Job, still holds fast to his integrity, despite the fact that you have incited me against him to ruin him for no reason. Yeah. So immediately there, God is already accepting the fact that he is acting unjustly in afflicting Job. Mm-hmm. But the right, issue right. is that it's it justice is lower down the rung in terms of importance than faith. Mm. And justice can be put on hold in order to investigate the nature of faith to test its limits and its substance. So we're getting into this concept of theodicy. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, you know, theodicy is the notion of how can God be just in a world where evil happens? Um, It's talking about the quality of God's justice, how he organizes the world. Really what you have already in the the, the prose narrative at the beginning is an assertion about, about, well, basically an answer to this. So is is God just all the time? And the book of Job's answer is no. Right. But he doesn't need to be. The danger would actually be if he was just all the time. And this is where that word for nothing, for no reason, the Hebrew is chinam there, um, comes in really quite importantly because it points to a broader issue. As both Job and his friends note throughout the book, um, you can see this in chapter 9, verse 2 from Job. You can see it from in uh, chapter 25, verse 4 from Bildad. Uh, it appears many other places as well. All of them acknowledge the fact that it is fundamentally impossible for a human to ever be totally righteous. Mm. But in every human being, there's always some sin, no matter how minor. Now, if God was totally justified, if he was acting totally in line with justice, everyone would be punished all the time. So bringing up this possibility of someone suffering for no reason, for no cause, also brings up the reverse possibility, that people who have no reason to be rewarded can be. And this is where looking at the Hebrew word there helps, because what you'll usually find is words like this will be translated with grace. Chain is the Hebrew word, and it is basically always translated as grace um, by mm-hmm. most translators. Apart from in this adverbial form, where people will do it, translate it as for nothing. Hmm. But the basic idea behind grace is that it's it's unwarranted. Mm-hmm. It's for no reason. And therefore, just as Job suffers for no reason, he can also be restored for no reason. So it's sort of the shadow like, side of grace. It's the, Exactly. Okay. And it, it just points to the fact that God is not bound to act only according to what is fitting, at least in terms of a human justice idea. Of course, God always acts in a fitting manner but what is is this idea of human justice shouldn't really correspond to the divine right god is free to act as he will he's free to act by grace for no reason okay 
it changes the thrust of the book to being about justice to being about grace. Sort of, yeah. the, there's a higher theological ideal than justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, grace and and faith specifically. So okay. for a human, the ideal would be to act in faith. The for God, it what it points to is the fact that whilst justice matters to Him, and He will protect the 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 plight of oppressed peoples, as is repeatedly demonstrated throughout the Bible. Yeah, um, He He can also act out of keeping with justice. He can restore people who have maybe done bad things, which, as Job and his friends point out, is everybody to some degree. Um, he can, but equally, he can he can bring about suffering or, or something else along that's more negative, even in instances where it doesn't seem entirely warranted. But the issue is this will always have some kind of function. And mm-hmm. the book of Job is not trying to give you a universal answer for why suffering happens, but it gives you a specific instance. Suffering is happening in this case because God is looking at faith and what the human capacity for faith is. This isn't necessarily going to be the case in every instance, but it is in the case of Job. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, So then to go back to your kind of chiastic structure, then if if we're operating on this principle that grace is sort of a higher theological premise here, what is then we get this sort of central idea of this wisdom poem. And so this wisdom poem is sitting there and it's making a claim as well. And how does that claim yeah. lay alongside the claim that is being made by the intro and by the epilogue and the prologue? So when you're looking at the poem, it, it comes out of nowhere. Pretty much every speech is introduced by, you know, an X answered and said. But as soon as you get to chapter 28, there's no introduction like that. Right. It follows on from a speech by Joe. And yet in chapter 29, following on from 28, you then get, you know, and then Job lifted up. up his proverb again. Yeah, right? yeah. So he started doing this again. So at least within the text, there's some sense in which chapter 28 doesn't belong to any speaker. And it just kind of is in here in the middle and it breaks the basically what the, the dialogues of Job and the three friends up from what is then going to follow, which looks a little bit like a kind of mock um, court hearing where you have... You know, twenty one thirty one. Joe setting up his his defence mm-hmm. or his or maybe his accusation uh, if he's putting God on trial, and then you have the kind of mediator come in in Elihu and then God respond. But with twenty eight to begin with, you know, we're faced suddenly by a poem which then basically is just talking about wisdom. It says, unlike all manner of the most precious and difficult to acquire natural resources, humankind can't find wisdom. They don't know what it's worth. They can't barter for it. They can't purchase it. It's just not accessible through any of the normal means of human activity. In fact, this doesn't just apply to humans, but it applies to the whole of the created order. Even mm. Abaddon, like this, this kind of um, figurative notion for death or destruction of some yeah. sort, has only kind of heard a rumor of it and doesn't know anything more than that. You know, that, that places you in a situation where, well, we've just had Job and his friends talking extensively about, hey, I've got wisdom. I know this ah. to be right. This is actually how Eliphaz begins his speeches in, in chapter four. You know, I have learned wisdom. I have it. And their, their understanding in general is that, you know, all of these, these individuals are elders in the community. They possess wisdom because of their age and because of their standing. This is a traditional viewpoint about one of the the potential ways to acquire wisdom. Um, but the wisdom poem pretty much destroys that notion. Yeah. If you can't find it anywhere, presumably you don't get it with age either. 
or at least age is not the primary thing which could give you wisdom. And obviously the poem answers this. So as you move on beyond verse 22, it talks about the proper source of wisdom, God. Mm -hmm. God knows where it is. It's his creative activity and like the all-encompassing knowledge of his whole creation, the way he's, he's ordered absolutely everything. This is the only manner through which wisdom can be discerned. So only God has true wisdom. That culminates in the final line in chapter, in, in verse 28. And he said to humankind, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, eschewing evil is understanding. So we've just had, you know, close to, well, what is it, like 25 odd chapters of four of supposedly the most wise men in the community debating about wisdom and justice. And then you get this poem at the end of it. And it's like, well, God's the source for wisdom and there's been no God in this whole section. Yeah. But where was God? God was in the narrative right at the beginning. Yeah. He's already told us what we need to know. So in terms of it, it correlating to the narrative, as readers, we're in a privileged position because the narrator has basically put us in, in a situation where we know far more than the main, the principal actors do. And that knowledge is specifically lo located with God. We know what mm. God did. We know what his intention is. And therefore, for us as reading it, you know, uh, the fear of the Lord, you know, defer to what God has said in those instances. Talk to me for a second, if you can, what is a practical application of this idea of if we're this reader who's able to see this and know that, you know, this is the whole point of what we're, what has been happening up to this point, that God is sort of in control, has this superpower called grace that sort of, you know, <laughs> goes above and beyond justice. Um, yeah. What is that? What is that practical application there then for us? So for me, this strikes to what we're going to see when we start looking at Elihu's speeches. But um, basically the key feature of the, of the wisdom dialogue is that Job has asserted that he is more justified than God in some sense. He may not have said it outright, but he has implied it repeatedly. On the flip side, the friends have said, there's no way you can be more justified than God, therefore you are wicked. Now, both... Both parties are operating in absolutes. They think that their knowledge is full enough that they are able to make a total proclamation about what's going on. But that's a type of arrogance. Mm. And both parties then are committing, maybe not the sin exactly, but something like along those lines where, where you know, for the friends, it's basically victimizing a victim. Yeah. When they don't know what's happened, they are expounding from what little they've seen. For Job, it's very much in reaction to that assault. In some sense, you know, in chapter three, Job doesn't begin by by, by cursing God. He curses his life. Mm -hmm. He he wishes he hadn't lived. It's not. It, it will develop, but it isn't directed at God at that point. Yeah. Um, for Job, it's 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 become this notion of I'm certain that I did nothing that is commensurate with this punishment and therefore I must be justified. So if we're gonna if we're gonna think about this more homiletically, like part of it is is uh, a movement towards being more, more humble, showing mm -hmm. humility in your judgments of others, especially if you don't know much about the situation. We're not talking about about friends seeing Job murder someone and then casting judgment. We're talking about the friends seeing somebody suffering and then expounding from that that because God is just, he must have done something. 
it's, it's three, four times removed. And it's based on a fundamentally incorrect supposition. That's that God is only concerned by justice. Mm. But, you know, as is, as is well, you know, I think well um, rehearsed within Christianity, you know, the idea of God's grace and freely given, you know, reward that is undeserved is, is fundamental to the whole belief system. So Richard Rohr talks about this idea of non-dualistic thinking, getting mm, out sure. of dualism, spiral dynamics, talks yeah. about, you know, a, a, a more evolved way of thinking about the world of, of yeah. operating in the world. It's this idea that it's not just an if and, it's not just a zero sum problem you give i get i give you get you know there's no there's no uh symbiotic relationship really available no no mutually beneficial relationship right Um, everything's absolute yeah yeah similar to what you just said before and so i think that uh no it makes it makes good sense because the problem is is there's no there's no middle line between friends here and both of them are operating with what they think is the same uh like both of them presume something yeah. and they're presuming the same thing. And it's almost like they're talking past each other. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, and, and that, I think that's very clear to the readership as long as we have that narrative frame in mind. It's that the reason why they're talking past each other is because both of them are obsessed with justice. <laughs> yes, they're obsessed yes. with this human concept. Yes. Because uh, it's not divine justice they're talking about. It's human justice. Yeah. It's they're not thinking more broadly. Their notion is that because Job is suffering, well, you suffer when you have broken the law in some sense or when you've done something wrong. So, you know, if humans punish bad action and, you are, and you're having natural suffering, then surely God is punishing some kind of bad action for you. It's that diagnostic, you know, actions, consequences. Yeah, uh, like here's the formula, I'm plugging into it, and this is the result. Exactly. Yeah. So, but that, that, that's a human notion of... of cause and effect and, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, crime and punishment. The problem is, is that as we've seen from the narrative um, frame, but also as you can, as you can pick up then from things like the, the wisdom dog, which starts to talk about all this natural imagery and the expansive, unknowable extent of the whole of the universe. And obviously this is dated slightly because we now know a lot of that stuff, but we could, we could rewrite Job 28. We could rewrite, um, the divine speeches to suddenly use imagery which go beyond that talking mm. about quantum theory and that kind of thing where yeah. nobody really quite is sure why it works but it does um, rather than you know creatures doing things or you know the right that we completely understand at this point exactly um, the, the point there isn't that isn't the specific propositions that they're talking about it's the concepts which they're entailing um, anyway. All that said, the point is, is that the ordering of the world is surely much more complex than just one man's relationship to his sin or his suffering. Mm. So, you know, even if you could apply human justice to this, there's no way you know all of the factors which are in play. And we can actually see um, when we look at Elihu an example of how this might play out as well. All right. Well, let's let's look at Elihu then. Um, is there any significance to the name Elihu? Uh, um, I mean... It means he is, he is my God, um, okay. or my God is he. Yeah. So, you know, there is something along the, the sense of his name being, um, you know, indicating that we are making a movement towards God in some sense. You were describing him as a mediator. Um, so tell me more about yeah. that mediator aspect of him. Yeah, so Elihu, he's, like I say, he's, an, he's a strange figure. He just appears, and he comes in, 
very deferential to begin with, and then proceeds to absolutely rip apart all of the, the people who have been taking part in this discussion. These opening five verses tell us exactly what Elihu's going to do. He, he isn't like the friends. He's not saying, Job, you've sinned because you're <clears> suffering. He's saying, Job, you're in the wrong because you're claiming that you're more righteous than God, and that's right. absurd. Okay. And to the friends, he's saying, no, you guys are awful because you don't know anything, and yet you're telling Job that he's, he's sinned. You're declaring huh. him rasha, wicked. You don't need to read the rest of Elihu's speeches <laughs> to know what he's saying. This <laughs> does the whole thing. So is that why in chapter 42 then, when Job kind of answers the, to God that I know you can do anything and no plans of yours can be opposed successfully, like that's when Job finally figures it out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He has realization and the friends don't. And, and also here, just seeing as we're bringing up that, that conclusion part, it's also worth noting that his desire throughout at least from chapter 12, 13 onwards, all it has been has been to encounter God. And he's right. expressed this in wishes throughout, but he's not, he's not ever considered them realistic. And eventually he settles on this kind of like court case analogy as a way of bringing God to him. In a very real sense for Job, I'm not 100% sure if it would really matter what God said to him. But the very fact that he's now seen God is all he really needed. Mm-hmm. And that is enough to kind of like disarm the, the, the growing anger and, and arrogance that had, has taken place within, mm. within the book. But, you know, he, he's, he's the one who has been wronged in some sense. But, you know, it's not that his suffering has no purpose. If that right. makes sense, it's he doesn't know what the purpose is, but seeing God is is enough to kind of disarm that to a degree. And the answer God gives isn't the answer that God gives, and that Job kind of understands isn't one of well, God, you're just right all the time, and God, you're just all the time. It's yeah. it's a bigger concept than that. Yeah, exactly. He's his response is far more about knowledge, mm-hmm. lack of knowledge, and the fact that God has all of that knowledge. And this is this is. You know, that's that's essential to really what's taking place within the resolution here for him. It's he's recognizing that perhaps justice wasn't what was key all the way along here. And that's something that as readers we knew right from the start. Thanks for listening. We'll be posting some bonus materials related to this episode in our Facebook group, The Bible Project 2020. Be sure to join if you haven't yet. You can also join us for online worship Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. at hydeparkumc.org slash live. I'm Matt Hotho. See you next week.